Hey, hey, and welcome to the Rhythm Changes podcast. I'm your host, Will Chernoff, and this episode is sponsored by Chernoff Music. I release my recorded work under the Chernoff Music label. It's also the home of my podcast network, including this show, Pacific Sound Radio, Vicarious, Jazz Office Hours. And if you haven't heard any of the three albums released on my label yet, go to churnoffmusic.com and check out what's in store for you there. You can buy a CD. That's probably the best way you could show your love for this podcast today. Go to churnoffmusic.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show for 2024. Thank you for listening. I'm very excited for another year of podcasting with you. Even if this is your first episode, I think it'll give you a great idea of what's in store this year. Got a great guest who's played with a lot of the best young musicians in the city. He's a multi-instrumentalist bringing that conversation to you right up next. And then some announcements about the show that you won't want to miss at the very end. So stay tuned for that. Our guest today is a bassist. He plays upright bass. He plays electric bass. He plays guitar. He plays in his band called Path, which he co-leads with Paco Ha. He's also one of the most active side people who plays with musicians like Gordy Lee and many, many more. And the next time he's playing locally is at an event by the Couch Jams Collective on Thursday, February 15th. Tickets for that may or may not be available as of the time I put this up, but I will direct you to those so that you can hear him there. Enjoy that event. Please welcome to the Rhythm Changes podcast, Francis Naluz. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> hello, how are you doing? I'm I'm great. It's a beautiful sunny day. Uh, it's been nice. It's been raining for like more than a week straight yep. at, at this point. Uh, so not having to deal with that has been quite pleasant. Yep, I changed jobs coming into this year. And I think the entire time I've been working at my new job, which is about a month now, it's been raining every day except for one. And that was like the day before the snow day. So I feel like I haven't got to enjoy any of it. So I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for everything to turn. (laughs) It's coming. It's coming. I mean, you know, well, it was Groundhog Day recently. And I think some of the groundhogs saw their shadows. But, you know, if you don't like what one of them says, I'm sure there's someone out there. (laughs) in the rest of the country one of the other groundhogs had something you agree with so you can just you know agree with that one (laughs) and hope for the best so we could all find our own like groundhog echo chambers based on whatever we want to listen to is that what you're saying yeah (laughs) okay that's what it's for i I dig it i dig it i'm trying to think of the different times that i've heard you one of the times that stands out to me and there's a whole bunch of gigs that i'm aware of that you've done recently but i saw you in the fall with path and you played the early show at guilt and co now you've played it other places too. And I want to hear about how some of those went. But when I heard you do that early set at Guilt, I think it was in October, you and Paco, you played with Erica Chow on the second saxophone, Sue and Park on keys, and uh, Jordy McIntosh on drums. I think Seth Kitimura is the other drummer that you play with regularly in Path. Is that the lineup of your band, Path? Um, yes and no. I would say Path is more like at, at this point, we, we've kind of drafted members. I don't, I don't really, I don't think there's a, a specific set lineup. I mean, you know, technically Paco and I are the co-leaders, but um, it really came about as like just this desire to play with our friends. Um, and I like to say that anybody who's been in Path just is in the band at this point. Yeah. So, uh 
like, you know, shout out to some of my friends who have been in it. Jordy McIntosh, right? Ben Millman was in for a gig. Uh, Tristan Young was in for a gig, you know, and whoever's in the future, you know, whoever decides to sit in with us or we call, you know, I'm, we, we like to do a different things. You know, one of the nights you saw us, I think was, we were just playing a bunch of like R&B and soul yes. tunes. Yeah. At Guilt and Co. Uh, which is not what Path did first, but we're kind of just, we kind of just do stuff. You know, we're considering exploring uh, a new theme that I will not yet spoil, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that will be quite fun. So yeah, we like to change it up, you know? Yeah. When you played at that October show, I remember that you played a tune by Dr. Lonnie Smith. You played a song by the Jackson 5. You played the tune called Red Baron. You played stuff that was like that, stuff that almost falls into the jazz bag, but really was in like that R&B pop covers, which is great because, you know, you're at, when you're at Guilt & Co., that's like one of the best things you could do. But then I know that later that month, you played at Chill X. And I know that what you played at Chill X, I didn't make it to that one. It wasn't the same as what you did there, right? Then you went and you played your originals. Yeah, Um I find that a lot of what I've been doing lately has kind of been with that band in mind as the vessel. Um, you know, I feel like I know my friends well enough. You know, if if they're listening to this and they're thinking, eh, no, no, you no, you don't. No, too bad. <laughs> um, but I like to think that when I write stuff, I can hear the people that I want playing it. And that changes what I do. So if I'm trying to write a line and I can hear, for example, Paco playing it, I'll change it up a little bit or lead it in a certain way that I think would make sense for the way that my my friends know how to do it. Like I wouldn't write a sax line for Paco the same I would write for Gordy or for Erica, for example. You know. And if you listen to those three play, very different. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I, I also, I, I love the double tenor thing. I love it so much. Um, it was, I was almost worried about it at first. Uh, it's like for the very first oh. path kick, I was like, well, we have two tenor saxophones. Is that going to be okay? It was, and it was great, you know? Um, and it is, again, just an identity thing with all the different sax players. It's, they're practically playing different instruments at that point. So it's not really a concern of mine anymore. It's nice. I mean, some, sometimes if I'm trying to write a two part thing, I have to spread it out a little more <laughs> so it doesn't sound like the same, but you know, everybody's tone is so different. Anyway, yeah. It doesn't matter too much. Yeah. So you mentioned the first path gig. What was the first path gig? Cause the first one that I'm aware of is just, I have the cheat sheet of being able to scroll back through the gig list. And the first time that I, caught you down on the list was when you played at Tyrant Studios. It was almost a year and a half ago now. It was in the fall of 2022. Was that the first Path show or was it something else? That was, yeah. uh, October 2022. Um, That was really great. Uh, It's it's hard to put it into words, but I feel like I've been trying to chase something like that ever since. Not that I've not succeeded, but that seems to be kind of the point I want to reach all the time, which is uh, a fun thing for me because 
that was a that was one of those no rehearsal gigs because none of us were available, uh, and it was also me not uh, putting the charts out in time. I think Didn't like the, the night before, <laughs> I cut two tunes and added two tunes, uh, something like that. I don't know something something messy. So we we showed up pretty early, um, talked through it, played a little bit, and it's it's, it's funny because I I. I realized afterwards that that gig that we played that was like one of the best ones, one of my favorite gigs that I've played was the first time that Paco and Erica had met, or was it, was it a couple of the members of the band had met Sue in Park. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which yeah. is hilarious because of what that gig turned out to be, which was just crazy like chemistry making it work uh you know and it was messy in all the best kinds of ways i love it when things get a little a little out of hand you know yeah and that sounds like it was more on the original side of things than the guilt and co r&b covers side of things in terms of the many faces of the band yeah that that was uh i had a couple tunes i wrote for that and a couple that i kind of pulled in that I thought would fit. Um, note, I think a notable highlight for me is I, I transcribed a Christian Scott uh, arrangement of a Tom York tune, The Eraser, oh. which was I was a really big fan of at the time. And that turned out completely not like the original <laughs> recording in the best possible way, where like the, the energy we had was just completely different, which I loved. Uh, so that I think was a was a good highlight for me from that one. Nice. I want to go a little bit before that too. I want to know how you got there because that sounds like we're getting towards the the actual origin situation of the band. So you ended up at that first gig that was almost a year and a half ago in the fall of 2022. If you think to before that, which could be the summer or maybe it's like the back in the spring at CAF or something like What's the actual kind of origin moments of the of the band? How it ended up being those people? How you finally got to do it and unlock this feeling that you said that it opened up for you? Um, well, Paco, Erica, and Seth, and myself. Uh, well, we we went to Cap together, and we we all live in Richmond. Uh, so naturally, we spent a lot of time carpooling up there. Um, and the band kind of came together as a as a desire just to play with my friends. I I kind of figured that I kind of noticed that after I, I graduated, all I really wanted to do was hang out and play music with my friends. And you know, we managed to accomplish that, but we got you know, we got really close over those those uh nightmarish, very early morning long commutes to CAP uh-huh. and back, <laughs> uh, as I'm sure many CAP students have in the past and will continue to do in the future. And doing right now, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> you know, and we, we jammed together at CAP frequently, but it w- we didn't actually do all that much, uh, like the four of us playing together, anything serious beyond like, you know, sitting in one of the, one of the classrooms and playing some tunes together or something like that, just messing around on standards. You know, and it's it's not that often that I thought of, or 
at the time I didn't even really consider like I'm going to hire two tenor sax players for this gig. You know, like Pass really came about like I want to play with my close friends, these specific with people, those people because I like them and I want to play with them. Um and actually first that first Pass show I actually asked someone else to play before I put that band together. Uh and they said no. <laughs> so I I decided, you know what? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother with that. I'm just gonna call my friends. You know, I love my friends. We get to play together. Uh and right before that show was uh Gordy Lee and Faven Kidani's rush hour. Mm-hmm. Uh and that is where I met Suen Park. Okay. So like I think like not not actually that long before the first path gig. And I was I was blown away, you know? So I was like, you need to be in this band. I didn't give her a choice. I just said, you know, you're you're gonna you're you have to, right? But it it was the perfect fit. You know? Wow. For what we were doing at the time, for what we were doing that night, everything lined up Mm -hmm. which was nice i was at that rush hour show yeah yeah and we'll talk about rush hour later because you ended up sharing a bill one year if you fast forward a year you shared a night at tyrant studios i want to hear about that but we'll we'll get there i want to stay in this period of time because this is fascinating me uh right now because yeah i was at that rush hour show i remember that being a big deal that was also like early days of rhythm changes too i was just trying to meet all these people who like i'd been checked out of this community for so long i was just coming back and i had so many people that i felt like i could meet that night i remember was feeling really electric and it's cool that the momentum kind of led into where you were at and you mentioned though when you graduated so does the timing line up there did you graduate from cap in the year in the spring of 2022 or something like that had it just happened or when did that happen yep uh spring 2022 yeah which Feels like a long time ago now. It kind of was. I guess it was. <laughs> I guess it was. Yeah. I don't think about it too much. Yeah. That, you know, the passage of time and all that. Days are long and years are short. That yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. I remember the first time I ever heard you perform. And it was also that summer. It was in the summer of 2022. It was at the Fort Langley Jazz Festival. And you played right. with Ethan Lawrence. I did. Yeah. <laughs> So that that was the first time I ever heard you play anything, period. I think that was the first time I saw you, yeah. Yeah, that was a good gig. It was a good gig. <laughs> that was uh that was Carl DeYoung on the on the kit and uh Ethan Lawrence on the trumpet. Tamash Belai. Yep. On Sax. The saxophone. And it was yeah. a cordless quartet, right? That was it. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, we had we had a rehearsal at Carl's house in uh, in Langley. It was quite the uh, quite the journey. Yeah, but it was super it was super fun. Was, I remember it being really hot. Yep, that's what it, <laughs> that's what it was, you know. Um, but it was good. Yeah, we had just come through our second heat wave, twenty twenty one heat wave, twenty twenty two heat wave, and then we were in there in Fort Langley. Yeah, it's good times though. Yeah, yeah, that was the first time I've heard you, and then. At some point between then and your path debut, there was that rush hour gig. And then a couple months later, then you did your first path show. There was another show that I noted down that you were involved in within this kind of core period of time this summer after you graduated. And it's with Gordy. It's not the rush hour show, but it was Gordy's debut as a band leader. This is uh, shortly after I met him, too. This was at the Lido uh, in Tim's first season of Pass the Hat at the Lido presented by the Infidels. 
And when I look back on it, I think this is like one of the most stacked lineups of people in their early 20s that I've ever seen. If you if you look back at what it is now, uh, Gordy's band there was Faven, Noah Franch Nolan, you and Todd Stewart, which is just an unreal quintet. That's quite the band. And I was there. I remember that one. That was a good time, too. Yeah, it was so much fun. Any Anytime I get to play with those people is just... It's it's a whole new experience in the best kind of way. Every time, you know, I've been playing a lot with Gordy lately and also a whole new experience every time. He likes to try new things and uh, encourage us to push stuff around, you know, which as the, as the bass player is not always what you get to do. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, that that Lido gig was that I think that was my first Infidels gig. Okay, yeah. As well. One of the that was also one of the the first times I'd taken a fretless bass to a, <laughs> to a gig. <laughs> I was very nervous uh about playing in tune, but it turned out it worked it turned out. out. It turned out well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> was fun to fit both of those things on the stage with four other people, you know. As mm-hmm. the as you may know, it is not the largest. It's it's a it's a great place. Um but even in the best of times, fitting an upright bass on a stage with a bunch of other musicians is not always the most convenient thing. But it was super fun, you know, and a lot of my friends came to that show. I got to hang out, you know, I, I can't remember if that was the first time I'd met anybody new, but I'm sure it was. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we're good friends now. <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, I know that I'm too old for that series, for that Lido series, but I have played on that stage once. I have played one tune at the Lido. It was at this past years, like a month or two ago now, Infidel's Jam Session, I got up and I played one tune. I didn't even play the first year that happened. So I have played on the Lido stage, but I've been there many, many times and I dig that series a lot. It's something, it's something very particular. It's a great outlet for a lot of you guys. And it's the first time that I've heard a bunch of you as band leaders and it's a it's a cool place for for expressing something that there isn't quite the right place always to express at the other venues, you know. Yeah, it's good vibes all the time. Yeah, yeah. You you are now the upright bass player in the Gordy Lee Smurf Quartet, right? One of two. One of two. Okay. Is yeah. it Raph is the other one. Uh, Piotr Cow. Oh, Piotr. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 Is the other one. Yeah. Gordy likes to uh to rotate. Nice. And it's fun. I love I love going and. Like whenever Piotr's playing instead of me or whenever um, whenever it's Seth instead of Julian Ferrer mm-hmm. or, you know, whoever, whoever the band is at any given time, even, you know, it's still Gordy's Smurf band. Uh, and there are the ideas that he's wanting to pursue at the time. And I love to see how it's different. Even if, even if the, the repertoire, like sometimes, rarely, is similar um seeing these different musicians change change the music and make decisions that I wouldn't have thought to do or maybe even don't make mis- decisions when I would have made one uh-huh. you know and I see how that changes the music and I think oh next time I'm going to try doing what Piotr did or next time I'm going to try doing what whoever did, if it's ever another bass player, you know, just stealing ideas. Yeah. 
Yeah, I dig that. Yeah, that's right. Because the Smurf Quartet gig that you didn't play was at All City Athletics, and Piotr played bass at that one. And yeah. I was there. And, and it you was were great. There. It yeah. was awesome. It was so good. <laughs> I'm finally going to uh, repent for missing All City. I've missed all three of them so far. I'm going to the one that's in March. But I missed those first three, and I sent people the two of them. I sent Michelle Escudero to that Gordy Lee Smurf one, and I sent Chris Fraser to the Kevin Romaine one. But I've, after missing all three of the first ones, I finally get to go to that place in March. So I'm excited to see what it's like in person. It's, you know, yet again, good vibes all the time. Yeah. It's a very interesting room for, for sound, but I think it, it, it creates a unique atmosphere. Uh, for really any kind of music. Mm-hmm. But the places that you played with Gordy, with the Smurf Quartet, one was at Tyrant once again, and Julian Ferrer was on drums. And the other one was Frankie's Late Show. That was just last month, right? It was it was the return for, the, for 2024 of Frankie's After Dark. It was on January 12th. Indeed. Yeah. So that's in your recent memory. How did that go? What can you tell me about that night? Because I wasn't there. That was also very fun. I mean, any... I, I love playing with, with the Smurf band. <laughs> um, that was a night where we were playing music that I felt I could just be completely loose on. You know, it's not, it's not like some other times where I felt like I really, I really have to follow this. I have to be, you know, exactly what's necessary for any given moment. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I was approaching anyway, but um, it was a different kind of, serving the song so to speak it's like instead of serving it with accuracy i'm serving it with intention and all oh, that's interesting energy, right because a lot of that stuff like we were doing a lot of time no changes um kind of just spacey rubato sections on occasion or just doing some kind of really frequent repeating pattern um something just stayed happening the whole time and there were, you know, sometimes there were times where I would just decide I'm not, I'm not going to play. And that always sounds cool. I've found sometimes, sometimes I just decide <laughs> not to play. And I, I, and sometimes, and I got that idea. Um, well, Gordy was one of the people I got th- that idea from, but I also, uh, last year I, I read this really good book, uh, it's Victor Wooten's book, The Music Lesson. Oh. Uh, if anybody has spoken to me in the past year, I've probably mentioned it to them and gushed about how much I loved it. Um, and just some of the ideas in there are so applicable. Um, not only in like a playing context, but he he talks about it from an, an educator st- uh, standpoint. And it's also useful there. And, you know, one of the the ideas he talked about was just sometimes you don't need to play. Or sometimes the 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 vibes of the song and the atmosphere that the song has created, um, you don't need to do things all the time. You know? And that's kind of the bass player thing too, right? It's like, you know, I don't need to play crazy fills all the time i don't need to do my silly runs i don't need to play chords pat you know you know all the way up on like the 15th fret and you know play my major seven voicings no i don't need to do that <laughs> you know i need to, i can play 
I've learned to get a lot of satisfaction out of, uh, you know, I'm going to play whole notes for three minutes and not change what I'm doing. <laughs> and I, I'm very happy about it. Yeah. You know? Wow. I read that book probably in like 2009. So I do not remember very much of, of its contents, but I do remember the impact that it had on me when I was just starting to play. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that it's still a, a thing that, that people encounter. And it's definitely an important bass player thing to to check out and experience like the the Victor Wooden mindset and some of the some of the themes that that he goes back to as as being like one of the great electric bass innovators, but also like he has this really strong desire to kind of dig down to some kind of message or some kind of truth that he wants to share, you know. Uh, shout out to Parker Woods, by the way, for lending me his copy of the book. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it was it was great. And, I, you know, I was going through the UBC education program at the time. So that was a nice break from doing my class readings and from the general kind of stress of the program at the time. So mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, I mean, you you are active as a teacher now. We're here to definitely talk about your artist side as opposed to like your day gig teaching business. But like uh, you did the UBC program, you would have started doing it like right around the time that you started math, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I started in September 22 and, uh, we played, we did path in October 22. Wow. What a period of time for you. Like the summer and the fall of 2022, what an active time where like all these things happened and all these connections kind of got turned into things and made their way out into the world. Yeah. It was a crazy set of coincidences. Huh. Graduating from cap too. Yeah. Yeah. It was a busy time. Yeah, very very busy time. Does it feel like a less busy time now? Or does it feel very much like that still because you're continuing to do that, do the work and do those things? I would say I'm generally less busy now. Or like it feels less stressful maybe, maybe than maybe that's right it. at the beginning, yeah. Because yeah. like I'm, you know, I'm still doing stuff every yeah. day. I'm still playing often enough. Maybe not often enough. I could always play more. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I definitely feel less stressed out now, you know, now that I'm giving the homework instead of doing it. Ah, (laughs) that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I could dig that. I'm just thinking still about that book, the Victor Wooten, the music lesson, the kind of, if you ask me to like say anything I remembered about the book, I think one of the only things I remember about like the Victor Wooten thought is the thing where he talks about how no matter what note you're playing, you're never more than like a semitone away from a right note even if you think you're playing a wrong note. That was a cool idea. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things I got from that was just, he had this whole thing about like, don't try hard, try easy, right? Like some sometimes, sometimes you just need to stop thinking so hard or stop. Oh yeah. You know, stop worrying so much about every little thing. You know, and sometimes you just need to let let the vibes flow, which is good. That's, mm-hmm. that's been that's been really useful for me as a player. Um, you know, he he talked about kind of sensing the vibe of the room, or you know, if you wanted to change the energy of what you're doing, you know, or or grab somebody's attention or something. 
instead of playing louder, you can play quieter or something like cool, cool things like that. Or instead of playing a fill here, just don't play, just stop. And then when you come back in, it's like, whoa, something just happened. But sometimes people don't, don't know that, which Uh is so, it's so cool to me. Like you can do something and it's going to affect people and they might not even know what just happened. I might not even know what just happened. If, even if I was the one who was doing it, even if I did it on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> Which is fun. I love, I love when I don't know things. Uh-huh. When you just let them wash over you, let them happen. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it feels like I'm a little too comfortable not knowing things. <laughs> but, you know, that, that's the kind of, kind of vibe that I like to have when, I, when I'm playing. It's just, this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. This is what it feels like. And if you listen hard enough, the song is going to tell you what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Or at least it should. And like the, the, the other angle of that is like, unfortunately, you know, if you play professional or semi-pro even gigs at any amount of time, you will have gigs that feel sucky or that don't feel as good as the good ones. And then you'll you'll realize that, oh, that feeling that you just described that you want, like that's not happening or that's not possible here. But like you will know that the reason why it's not happening is because of like other factors that are playing into it, like the the timing or the scheduling or the, you know, the people are not gelling or the environment that you're playing in sucks or the sound sucks or the the venue booker, the the contact at your corporate thing sucks or something like that. And like you can untangle the reasons why it feels that way and just kind of get through it and then like look forward to the the other good ones right yeah i mean i i like to think there's something to be gained from even the not so nice ones yeah so i i kind of use those as opportunities to be very very specific with like my technique or something it's like okay i don't like what i'm doing right now so i'm gonna take this chance to try and make all my quarter notes the perfect length or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know, some some minute thing that I can focus on instead of not feeling good about what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So that way I can at least feel like I got I got practice or something out of that, you know. Yeah. That kind of thing. Was electric bass your first instrument? It was. Yeah. Um all the way back in elementary school when my teacher handed out pictures of all the different instruments. Uh like just on a big old sheet. And I was like, I want to play the guitar. Uh, <laughs> it was not a guitar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very glad that that's what I ended up with. You know, I love playing the bass. I love playing the guitar too. Mm-hmm. You know, And it all comes in waves. Uh, but that was the beginning. The uh, I'm trying to think of another word for beginning. The origin. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody who was really important to my origin, who introduced me to everybody my age, some of whom are still my friends and been my friends for 15 years, when I was very shy, kid, and not very social, but this guy was the most social guy ever, Julian Jaime. Mm. He went to Matthew McNair Secondary School. So did you. So did I. How was your time in that band program that I got to know a little, little bit through him? Um, that, was, that was really great. Um, it was, I got to meet so many great people in there. I got to expand my musical horizons. I got to learn instruments. Uh, I got 
conscripted into playing the double bass because I, I, you know, I would have done it if my band teacher had asked, but I showed up to grade nine jazz band and she put it in front of me and said, you're playing this. And she's a bass player. And she is a bass player. <laughs> that's right. Um, you know, I didn't even know, I didn't even know the thing existed until I was like 14 and it was placed in front of me and I was told to play it. Uh, and I will forever be grateful for, for that. You know, and I learned on a, Oh, that bass was so hard to play. That bass was really difficult to play. I it's it's still there. I remember there's a big crack that was super like the neck broke off and it was super glued back oh into gosh. place. Uh and because of that, the action is crazy high, you know? I can't believe I learned on that. I mean, I'm glad I did, <laughs> but man. I think I think pretty much all high school basses are like that. Yeah, it builds character. Yeah, it's an important thing, and then the appreciation factor. I mean, I don't really play upright bass anymore. On my upright bass that I don't even own anymore, you know, it wasn't ideal. It was definitely like a student grade instrument. But yeah, if you get to play a good one that's set up to your liking, yeah, it really unlocks. It really you you appreciate it by that point when you when you get it and you're like, oh wow, this is this is how it should be. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how I felt when I got. Because I, for the first few years of Cap, I played a, uh, you know, a, a student bass, uh, and it wasn't quite set up the way I had preferred. Um, and then in like third year, this was during COVID, but I managed to snag this really nice like old carved bass. Uh, shout out to Rick Reynolds, who all yeah. the bass players know, of course. Um, and I was like, this is this is this is it. You know, and I was I was so happy about that. I still am. I love that bass. Yeah. Okay, I've got a little mini game here of sorts, I guess. I've got three bass players um, who I want to ask you about and let me know if you have a memory or anything to relay about like maybe the first time you heard this bass player or like what your influence from this bass player was. And they're like famous bass players, not people we know, but... I have would have a hundred percent confidence. We've already talked about Victor Wooten that you will have something about all three of these bass players. So I will begin with one who you did a tribute gig with. The closest connection, actually, I have, if I can think of, like, oh, I put myself on stage in like a position that is, resembles what you would have been in. Was I did a gig in November with a, a project of mine that I tried out called Western Red Cedar. And I had Katie Stewart playing fiddle and we played like a fusion of Celtic music and jazz. But the rest of the band was Erica on tenor sax, uh, Jancis Bautista on keys and Jameson Coe on drums. And you played with that trio where I was chugging along to Deluge by Wayne Shorter behind Erica with Jancis and Jameson. You played a Scott LaFaro tribute gig with them at Frankie's Late Show. So Scott LaFaro, bass player number one. Remember the first time you heard him? What do you got? Yeah, that was... That was a while ago. I mean, that was during my cap days and I was really into Bill Evans, as you do. Um, and there were a few times where people mentioned like, oh, you should check out Sunday at the Village Vanguard, you know, Scott LaFaro. So great. And I didn't really seriously do that uh, until third or fourth year. And then I started listening and I was like, holy crap, this is this is the sound. Mm -hmm. This is what this is. That was like exactly what I wanted at the time, you know, um, and getting more freedom to, 
to to do that kind of thing you know not that i don't love playing quarter notes of course uh this is because there's so much satisfaction in that but uh i had never heard somebody play bass like that before or at the very least i heard what current what you know the the modern people i was i was influenced by or i was listening to or even like current day electric bass players like i heard where they were coming from when they were doing that but i like my first exposure to that kind of style was i think you must believe in spring and that was eddie gomez on the bass right um i was like oh i really i really like this so i was checking out more stuff and then i heard you know waltz for debbie that record which just like flipped a switch mm-hmm. you know and that just that basically made me who i am like the tone the time the ideas the the freedom the you know chops i guess uh <laughs> you know guy guy had pretty good chops right yeah um all that 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 just completely flipped everything that i wanted to do on its head e- i mean even now like i i would say it's probably affected my electric bass playing at this point like it, it, i put so much into that uh yeah Scott LaFaro. I mean, anybody who knew me at the time would have thought that was probably pretty obvious. You know, and I guess anybody who read the title of the show, Scott LaFaro Tribute, yeah. But man, that's still the sound that I I try to go for. It's like a very, very specific technique that goes with that. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's still it's still one of my favorite things to listen to. Yeah. I first heard him when I took my private music instruction at Cap in my one year at Cap with Andre Lachance and he put uh, on Autumn Leaves from Portrait and Jazz. And I transcribed Scott Lafaro's solo on that one. And that's when I started digging him for sure. And and that was the, the beginning of my journey into that sound and that energy. Yeah. Are right, you ready for number two bass player? I'm always ready. Joe Dart. Joe Dart. Yeah. I remember, oh, I don't even remember when I got into Wolfpack. It was probably high school. Yeah, because uh, I'm curious when, so you're you're a good five-ish years younger than me. I'm curious when somebody like you would get into Wolfpack because for us, we got into them at the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. So like, was it, you would have been quite young if that was you too, but I'm curious, yeah, what, what your reference point would be. Probably like middle of high school, like maybe like 2016. Yeah. Um, I was like starting to get a little more serious about bass playing, you know, really genuinely considering going to music school and just wanting, basically just wanting to, to get really good. Cause I really liked playing the bass. Um, and that music was really accessible to me as something that it was just really nice to listen to. And it was super cool to see a really cool bass player like that. Um, you know, I have to be careful to preserve my neck muscles uh, if I <laughs> if I try to play like that too much. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I would say I like to I, that that was a, an important early influence. You know, as was Flea, for <laughs> which is pretty common for bass players. I think nice. I didn't have him as my number thir- third one, but that's cool too. That totally makes sense. Very big, very big deal you have to reckon with as a bass player. Yeah, that body of work. Yeah. Yeah. Is was I'm curious too if seeing 
Wolfpack already be successful at that point and be like a marker for music students and and people who wanted to be music students? Like, did it also uh, motivate you to learn about self production and home recording and stuff too? Because you know, you look at them and that's how they did everything, and they have that kind of DIY energy. Does like being a fan of that band or anybody who like makes that kind of nerdy DIY music school student very appealing music does it like give you the thought that you can go and learn how to make beats and do that kind of stuff does it motivate you to do that uh it does now I, at the time i knew so little about making music that that didn't even cross my mind i was just like oh this funny looking man plays the bass yeah. and he moves his, <laughs> his moves his head a lot um and you know and it's just a bunch of geeks playing music that sounds really good and they're having fun doing it you know that's and that's what I want to do. You know, mm-hmm. I just like to be a turbo nerd about stuff, <laughs> and that those guys kind of encapsulate that that kind of vibe. Definitely, yeah. That that is the same as as I think what it felt like for for us too. Is because we started digging it because they were like that, and we thought, oh, they, these guys are like us, kind of thing, and and we could do. But we didn't we didn't get it in terms of like, oh, we could go and record ourselves and learn to do that too. We didn't make that connection. We didn't feel like it was so possible. Nowadays, I think people who are like in high school now or starting cap now, I think like recording yourself and self-producing is like so common and you can learn so much about it that it's like, it's part of the learning from the jump. But what you're describing is is very much how how we felt, I think, is like, we didn't get it until like after we were deep into the the journey of learning to be instrumentalists that we could then go on and and do stuff like that ourselves. I don't think I don't think we we had it integrated like from the very beginning, you know. Yeah. It it was I still go back <laughs> and and listen yeah. to their stuff of course and like I love their new releases. Um and just the, kind of the general vibe they cultivate. Mhm. Yeah, I the I mean the other big thing uh, for us was like the 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 beginnings of Snarky Puppy and like those kind of high quality recording session live videos with all their people and like obviously we didn't think we could do that like that was a, a higher level of of doing it but that similar to how you could look at Wolfpack and be like hey this is this is like us you know we kind of looked at Snarky Puppy that way too but in like an aspirational way I guess yeah yeah all right, third one. What do you remember about the first time you heard Jaco Pastorius? Ooh, that was... I know I heard him in high school, but I don't think I really dug in until until college, you know, when we... when probably a lot of people dug into Jaco. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember being kind of blown away by all the stuff you could do physically on... The electric bass because i you know i'd messed around with harmonics before i was like oh it's fun if i don't play the fret then this this like dinging sound comes out neat and i never <laughs> really thought to use that musically um you know I'd, I'd made the connection right like oh the fourth fret is the same note but higher and a little bit out of tune the, the fifth fret is the is the is higher is the string that it is but i think two octaves uh-huh. higher right and then the 12th fret is the string that it is, of course, I'd made that connection, but I never, you know, tried to incorporate it too much into my playing. You know, then I listened to something like Portrait of Tracy, uh, which just, which 
does the whole the whole bag of tricks basically uh really hard to hard to beat you know and it's, it's he doesn't even have to do something that's you know exceptionally crazy complex crazy difficult it's just something that i hadn't heard before uh-huh. uh and then of course hearing jocko like rip all all kinds of different lines on the fretless bass of all things right the famously kind of difficult to play thing yeah uh had you already tried to play fretless before you dug him? I think when I, when I was 15, I, oh. I ripped all the frets out of my Squire P bass. Oh, what? And, uh, <laughs> and like sanded and epoxied the, the board. Uh, that was before I knew anything about working on instruments. So like <laughs> the action was way too high because I didn't file the nut and I didn't know how to adjust the saddles and the electronics didn't work for whatever reason. I think I just hadn't used that bass in a long time. Um, I still have that neck. I should, I should try again <laughs> now that I know a little bit more. But that was like I think that was in response to hearing him for the first time and then checking out like lots of people videos of people playing fretless bass on YouTube. And you know, I was like 15. I was only going to go buy a fretless bass. I really wanted a Warwick at the time because that's I, Victor Wooten's bass, right? Uh, I I honestly. I just went on YouTube and searched fretless bass. And one of the first things I saw was somebody playing like a semi hollow Warwick star bass. And I watched that demo a million times. Like the first (laughs) 90 seconds of it was just like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, You know, now I kind of, I kind of really want a fretless stingray, but you know, because I've been digging Pino Palladino lately Uh in like cheesy eighties pop tunes which is great. I, I, I love that stuff. And then I'm just like listening. I'm like, wow, Pino, you got away with that. He, <laughs> he really did. And it, it sounds so good, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> you know, I tried. I, I think I, I tried to use that bass a few times, but the electronics didn't work. So I just kind of played with it unplugged. It yeah. really, really hurt because it was way too high. But yeah, yeah Jocko, I mean almost all bass players have have had some kind of a Jocko thing I think you know forgive me for being presumptuous mm-hmm. but I think I would say it's a pretty safe bet yeah yeah I had mine for sure with Donna Lee yeah where I was encouraged to again like play that like the recording where he plays it in two keys and uh yeah that was when that was when I got a taste of that my I even had access to a fretless bass at New Westminster Secondary School at the time, so I got to try and play that on the fretless. I never owned one or played it beyond there, but I got to I got to check that out at that point, and that was that was a lot of fun to discover the possibilities of that for sure. What a what a fun instrument! Yeah, I've been doing. I've been trying to play more lately. Yeah, yeah. We talked about upright bass. We talked about bass guitar, kind of big influences here. Uh, what about guitar playing for you? Like, where does guitar come into the picture? What do you do on guitar these days? What's your What's your guitarist story? Um. Well, you know, I started like most guitar players do, playing campfire chords on the acoustic guitar. Uh-huh. You know, learning whatever was popular at the time, or you know, easy enough songs. You know, playing some Coldplay, playing, uh, you know, some John Mayer stuff. Well, that actually came right after. 
you know, I got my first electric guitar and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to play everything that John Mayer did, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, which was, that was really formative for me and still is quite, um, is prevalent in when I play getting to college was when I was like, okay, I'm seriously going to play like this style of music now. So I'm going to explore jazz guitarists, right. And taking lessons with, uh, with Andre Lachance and then taking lessons with Bill Coon afterwards. It was just, you know, I was introduced to Ed Bickert and the rest is history basically. So Uh like, Ed Bickert was just the number one for the first few years of my real jazz guitar playing, which was really, 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 really useful and is still just a sound that I adore. Um, And, you know, honestly, people who have had a a big influence on my playing, shout out to to Alvin Brendan. Uh I hung out with him a lot uh, when we were at CAP together and uh, I just stole a bunch of his ideas. Um, so I'm not, I, I would say sorry, but I'm not, <laughs> uh, you know, so he, he showed me a whole bunch of cool things, you know, sometimes he, he would pull me aside and be like, Hey, check out this cool Ed Bickert thing I just learned. Oh, and he was, was like, deeply influenced by Ed Bickert when he was a cap student. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then later on it just came to be, you know, I got, I got really into Ted Green. So like the solo Telecaster jazz guitar kind of, kind of vibe and that, uh, really forced me to be honest with myself about my ability to play a bunch of different chords and chord voicings and inversions and things like that. Uh, so that was a challenge, but well worth it. You know, I got into, I got into that from just videos on YouTube of, of Tim Lurch, who was like, you know, my teacher, Ted Green did, did it like this. And I was like, who's Ted Green. And then I just went down the rabbit hole and that was like all I listened to for many months, uh, and it was great, you know, and that's still, I love to, to attempt to play that way, you know, and then after that it was Kurt Rosenwinkel or Wes Montgomery or, you know, I, I really enjoy like modern guitar players now, like Gilad Hexelman, Lagerlund. Um, recently, maybe not that recently now, but Greg Howe or Alan Holdsworth or very recently Hiram Bullock. So now I'm uh, kind of getting into the, or I, at the time I was kind of getting into the, the fusion-ish territory. You know, not that I really ever had the chops to play like that. I just really enjoyed it that much. Um, but right now I'm super just digging into soul and R&B guitar, specifically like rhythm guitar. Um, and what, what sparked it was just like scrolling on Instagram and seeing... Uh, a video by Ella Feingold, who is the guitar player, was one of the guitar players, I think, on like the Silk Sonic record. Um, and a whole bunch of other stuff, like her discography just goes way back. And, and I, I just saw that and I was like, this is the coolest thing that I've ever seen. This is so clean and it serves the music so well. And it's so subtle, but if this wasn't there, the song wouldn't be as good. Yeah. I'm just hardcore digging into like rhythm guitar. And I'm loving it, R and B. You know, and it comes from the tra- the traditions that I'm already pretty familiar with, right? Like, you know, that kind of tradition comes from Spanky Alford, um, which is 
you know, he played he played jazz. But he also, you know, revolutionized playing that kind of rhythm guitar style of playing. Speaking of playing both jazz and R&B, uh, I've named a bunch of jazz gigs that you've played, mostly like your path gigs. Uh, but I also know that you play with R&B artists. I'm pretty sure you play bass most of the time you play with these people. But like I know you've played with Asaya, who plays at Guilt & Co. and has played at, I think probably played at Couch Jams a whole bunch of time. This event that we're plugging that you're going to be part of on February 15th that that organization puts on. Um, but I think you've played a bunch of gigs with Asaya. You've played with another artist called Frankie. Who are like the non-jazz? Who are the artists from this world that you play with? And what, what can you share about playing with this other kind of genre situation? Sure, yeah. I've So I've, I've done a lot of gigs with Asaya. Um, done some with Frankie, some with, uh, with Maya Jade, uh, with one with uh, Oliver James. And you know the this kind that kind of scene it really promotes just getting to know people like that the couch jams uh, sessions those are basically you know those those are an open mic and you sign up and you meet people and then somebody does something you like on stage and you're like hey I wanna I wanna work with you you know or I wanna I wanna I wanna hear you perform where when, when can I hear that happen where can I hear that happen you know and that 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 scene really encourages that kind of thing um i really enjoy being a part of that it gets it, it helps me explore something that's relatively new to me like i've been playing that for not at that long compared to you know whenever i started playing jazz music um so it's been it's been a breath of fresh air but it's also been kind of it's been really cool for me as just digging into the history of it. And it's like, if I go back far enough, the people that I'm listening to now are influenced by certain people who I really like also. And then those people are influenced by the jazz musicians that I already liked. So like uh -huh. the history is, is there. So I'm, I, what I'm doing isn't really that far removed, you know? And, and I get to just, I get to just chill out and and play really fun songs and meet really cool people and play at venues that I would never have played at played a jazz show at because they don't do jazz shows there. Like I got to play at Fortune Sound Club with with those folks and I got to we're playing at the Annex Theater in a couple of weeks. Uh, and there's just there's just so much. I know they do they did a couple of shows at the Cobalt recently. Uh, and, I, and Faven was playing bass for that one. And I, I heard they went really well. Yeah. Yeah. What was your first in? When did you get to cross over and get your first opportunity that looked like that and took you to that kind of place as opposed to the jazz world? Do you remember like what the first uh, ask or contact or gig was? How'd oh, yeah. you get into it? Um, my friend Matt Yang, we went to CAP together. Um, but And he was more uh, aligned with that kind of you know, that kind of scene, that, that kind of music. Um, and after I graduated, he, you know, I mean, there were, there were times when he called me beforehand. Um, but then he started calling me for those things and I said, sure, I'll go. Um, you know, cause he, he knew I was a bass player and he needed a bass player. And I had expressed interest in wanting to play that kind of thing before, but you know, going to jazz school, being in, in that kind of bubble, uh, I didn't get to meet very many people who were doing that kind of thing, you know? 
but then I'd, I'd see people, you know, post on, on their stories on Instagram or, or talk about like, oh yeah, I played this cool R&B gig or it's like, um, you know, clips from a show with a, with a singer and, and everybody's bouncing up and down and having a good time and dancing. Um, and I, I just got called and Matt just asked me to, to do like a, a couch jams show. One of the first, like, I guess public ones or one, maybe not one of the first, but an early one, I think summer 2021. Um, and that was at civic Plaza in North van. Uh, and it, and it was kind of the same deal, just just a whole bunch of singers, and we learn learning a bunch of songs. It was hard for me adjusting to that kind of thing because I'm used to like, okay, I'm gonna have my sheet music for the gig. I'm gonna know exactly what to play, um, and this was like, here are the chords uh, in the verse. Here are the chords in the chorus. Here are the chords in the bridge. Figure it out. Figure it out. Or <laughs> instead of being sent charts for the gig, it was like, here's a Spotify playlist learn these <laughs> yeah uh, at the time that was really scary and now I, I really enjoy doing it like that I feel like I, I get more out of the songs when I learn it by learning the songs instead of learning the sheet mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense yeah and it's it's liberating and scary if you come to it from the the education that you were having at that time because it's not what you're being it's not the way that you're being taught to go about it but it's something that when you get out there you end up doing it more often that way than this way anyways right yeah but it it, it was freeing you know and i remember re- being really scared the first few times where i i went up on stage like no music stand no papers just the songs that i had learned and the memories in my brain uh you know and i'm not the most uh memory adept individual (laughs) (laughs) at times so that you know before having practiced that a lot it was quite scary now i'm more comfortable now it it's more of like a fun challenge like oh now how quickly can i learn this song just for fun you know uh or what can i do here like what you know oh it's a it's a synth based part where they're just playing whole notes the whole time or something it's like how can i make this uh a little more engaging if I think that would serve the song better or uh, what kind of dance moves can I pull off while I'm playing whole notes to, uh, <laughs> to look cooler, <laughs> that kind of vibe. Yeah, I'm, glad, I'm glad you found that kind of outlet too, because it complements everything else that you're doing. Right. I noticed once I started doing that kind of thing, my, I, I really calmed down from trying to play so much, even in the, in the jazz side of things. I was like, what am I, what am I, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Do I need, do I need to play this many notes? Do I, do I need to, uh, you know, play a fill every four bars? No, I I didn't, you know. And that was people were trying to tell me that when I was get, really getting into the Scott Lafaro thing, and I didn't listen because I'm stubborn. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's a great producer I met, uh, Braden Rango. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I hope I said his name right. Um, yeah. But, you know. He told me the greatest because I I I I really wanted to get into session work and I really enjoy doing that kind of thing. Do, doing way more. I want to do way more session work just because it's fun. And he said, you know, the best R and B players are just jazz players who know when to shut up, or something like that. <laughs> and it was yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking, yeah, 
that totally makes sense because it's like it's the same traditions or the same history but you have almost a different role or at least a more subtle role sometimes in the band still very important and it's so it's so much fun to see like how little can i do that and and still like make this make sense make it sound good and make the rest of the band sound good you know it's kind of it's it's turned into a game at this point literally how 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 few notes can i play now instead of instead of how many mm-hmm. you know can i like what if i what if i just play half notes for a minute what's going to happen what are they going to do uh-huh. you know and it and it's so much it's so much fun you know and then as soon as you start to do more then you're changing the energy of the song again or you start to do less and you're changing the energy of the song and like you can do so much by doing less you know and it gives you so much room to do more if you're doing so much the whole time then it just becomes you know that becomes the sound of the music you're just doing so much the whole time yeah it's a question of dynamic range right because in that sense it's like you can't actually do more unless you do less some of the time because you need to open up the space for you to actually do more later right yeah. it was introduced to me and like i end up passing it on when i teach lessons now as like playing the sections like you know you you have an awareness of what the sections of the song are and you will set yourself somewhere in one section and then take it switch to somewhere else in another section to like make distinctions between the sections and then make make that move through the song right i think that's a very kind of bass player specific way of looking at an arrangement or of looking at a song like i i imagine you think that way from the drums too but you probably wouldn't intellectualize it as much on the drums because it's just much more obvious when you're playing the sections and uh, playing a dynamic range of a song on the drums but i think it's a very kind of bassist thing to like think about that a lot and think about what section you're in in the song and where you're at and where it's going next kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's quite the mental game. Uh, you know, like maybe maybe what I'm doing is physically or technically not that difficult, and that's fine because that's less work. Uh huh. <laughs> I, I don't I don't have to get tired. My hands my hands don't get tired. You know, I'm not not heating up my fretboard so much, you know, with all the, all these crazy lines, you know, you know, I had to learn to maybe not learn to, maybe that's the, that's the wrong word. I had to practice appreciating doing less. And I had to practice appreciating what the space I left was doing for everybody else. There's a really, there's a really obvious time this happened for me. It was at one of Asaya's gigs at Gilton Co. I remember like, I think it was one of the two set early shows. Um, and then the first set, I was kind of just playing, you know, just, you know, o- overplaying, if I'm being honest, just doing stuff, <laughs> um, you know, being kind of irresponsible is the way I like to put it <laughs> for myself. And then I, I was just thinking, because this was kind of, I was in the middle of that Victor Wooten book at the time, or maybe I just finished it. No, no, no. I was still in the middle. I was still in the middle. Um, and the second set, I was just like, well, what if I, what if I do all that stuff that he was saying? What if I play very, like, what if I do exactly what the song needs and not what I feel like doing as a bass player who, you know, who can play fills if I want to, or that kind of thing, you know? And then I noticed the audience was 
actually standing up and dancing and coming to the front. It's like, oh, they weren't doing this in the first set. Uh, <laughs> you know, and maybe it was a crazy coincidence, but it really hammered that home for me. Just why work so hard mm-hmm. when that's not what the song needs all the time? Yeah. Because there's no payoff out there in the real world for uh, exerting yourself technique-wise or doing technically fancy things just in and of itself. Like That doesn't actually have any value out there in the real world when you're playing, right? Yeah. Nobody else cares. Yeah. I've kind of been thinking like, you know, there's going to be... I'm the bass player in, in a pop band, right? In the audience, there's going to be like one person who's looking at me. Who even knows you exist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and me, like, there are maybe two people in the audience who are looking at me. And one of those two people, if they're a bass player, is going to actually pay attention to what I'm doing. And yet, if I screw up, everybody's going to notice. Yes. So, you know, it's a thankless job. No, it's fine. Um, <laughs> it's very true of drummers, too. Yeah, but you know, it's it's still it's it's very self-satisfying feeling feeling that kind of thing. All right, I got some other people's bands, some other gigs that you've played as a side person that I wanted to rattle off and see if you you had any moment from there or anything you wanted to share about how that went. And these are I think these are all ones that I didn't make, so I don't have my own side of it and I would hear what you would have to say about them. So one of them was at the end of November I don't know whether you've played with this band multiple times, but I had you on the gig list for this one. Michelle's band, uh, Kaleidoscope. You mm-hmm. played at Guilt. Yeah, that that was fun. That was like, that's kind of neat because we're all, everybody in that band is either current or past cap student. So it's, that one is actually like marginally more jazz leaning than the other R&B stuff, but it's still very much an R&B band. Um, I am not the usual bass player for that band. That's, Raphael Augustin but that was still that was a really good time I got to play music I don't normally play because it's kind of it's a, it's almost it's a different niche of R&B than the stuff that it's I usually get It's like it's triangulated from all the other stuff we're talking about like if you put it on a line of the jazz experiences you've had and then the R&B experiences you've had it's like over here in the middle but on a different vector like right it's related but it's not the same yeah yeah that, that was a good time yeah and it's, it's, it's like her original songs, right? Or was it covers too? Uh, I think it was mostly covers. Okay, yeah. There may have been an original two in, or two in there. Okay, I got to hear that group. I haven't. Yeah, you do. I, yeah, I do. I'll go with you next time. Yeah. Um, also, around that time, Tyrant Studios, you played with Mackenzie Tran. I did. That was, that was really fun. Um, one of the uh, rare but hopefully uh, increasing instances where I'll get called to play the guitar. Because mm-hmm. Emilio was playing bass, right? Emilio was yeah. playing bass. Actually, there were, there were, there were two sneaky doublers on that gig because Seth Kinemura was on the keys. Keys, yeah. Uh, and Jordi on the drums, of course. That was, that was a great time. Um, her thing was music performed and or written by women. Which was a really great thing. I don't. I don't think I've heard much of that before. Um, and they're like really great tunes. Awesome turnout. Um, got to see so many friends there. Got to see some new friends there. That was nice. Um, you know, got to practice playing the guitar. <laughs> it's good. You know, I mean, everything I've done at Tyrant, 
has been fun. I just really like Tyrant. Shout out to Daniel Dirksen. Yeah, the previous Rhythm Changes podcast guest before you. Yeah, the, the adjacent episode. Yeah. is that Does that venue kind of feel like the home base for you and a lot of your friends and the people you play with the most often? Uh, it's definitely one that we really like going to and that we really like playing at. It's just it's just fun. It's there's a lot going on right now. There's so many great venues to check out. For me, it certainly feels like there's a lot more happening right now than you know ten years ago when I was kind of around your guys's age or younger or when I was coming out of Cap. It feels like there's a lot more going on now than there was back then, which is amazing. I'll have to take your word for it. I didn't know at the time. <laughs> I like to say that so that you can take my word for it. Yes, for, for people who don't remember a previous era, I like to emphasize that this one is pretty awesome. Yeah, and I don't have much of a view further back from that, but certainly, you know, the only kind of then versus now comparison I have now is is doing really, really well. What kinds of like pressures or expectations do you feel like end up getting put on you or put on your your collaborators even, but just speaking for yourself, like, do you feel pressure to like post and put a lot of stuff on social media? Do you feel pressure to like play a lot? Do you feel pressure to make an album, which is something like you haven't done yet? Like these are all different things that my friends and I are people of different generations, you know, feel like is the thing to do or like an expectation. If you, if you go to cap, if you graduate from that program, if you're like going to have the identity of being a musician, there's going to be baggage on there of like things you're expected to do. Do you feel any of that stuff? Um, for a time, I would say that, yeah, I, I really felt like, oh, I should be gigging a lot more. I should be trying to sort out some kind of recording situation. You know, I should, I should try to build my social media following. That one was that one actually was never as prominent. Um, but I really, there was a time where I just really was so down on myself for not, you know, playing two or three gigs every week even one gig every week, you know, I was just like, oh, I don't have anything lined up for this month. Why? Is it because I'm a bad bass player? Right? That that kind of thing, you know? And it really, yeah. it's really easy to get into that mindset. Um, nowadays, no. I, huh. I, I feel really lucky to be able to just take the gigs that I want to take, uh, which is, you know, pretty much all of them that are offered to me because yeah. it's just my friends asking me to play. I say, yeah, I want to <laughs> play with my friends. I love my friends. And then the, the social media thing, I don't know. I don't really want to play that game, you know, like uh, I use it because it's useful and it, it's how I talk to people. But seeing what people have to do to be like a, a big musician on social media or like the way, the the treatment that people get, I don't know if I want to play that game or it's like, like the short form content thing. I'm I'm a, I, you know, I'm a big consumer of short form content as I think most of us are in the current year. Um but I don't know if I if I feel like making that cuz if I play a song or something, I want it to I want the video to be the whole song, you know? Uh yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. The the pressure has lessened a lot. Do you feel like that's uh it would be good if this is the case, I guess. Do you feel like that's a common thing for you and and your friends if to the extent that uh you can kind of get the temperature of that, like that you feel like you can just opt out of any pressure to post or any of that side of thing. And like it's more common for you guys to just not want to play that game because you realize how 
intense and soul crushing it is if you play it too hard and you're just like, no, we just want to have fun. Is that kind of the general reaction to what you see out there and you've grown up having to watch this and all that stuff? You know, I can't actually say that that's a conversation that I've had. With, no, with it wouldn't have come peers. up explicitly. Yeah. So I can't really speak for them. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't have it wouldn't be a conversation topic that would come up totally. I just feel like it's different now and that it, I would imagine that it must be healthier now and it would be easier for you to say, "Oh, I don't want to play that game" than it was for us because I think for us it felt like social media was the end all be all and it could do no wrong and like it was something that everybody had to do and it was just like you owed it to yourself to just be out there and kind of taking the reins of this thing that was like quickly rising and taking over the world. And like, this was just happening as we were coming out of high school, basically. So like we didn't grow up with it necessarily, but like when we arrived at the point where we were trying to do our own things, it was like this ascendant thing that everybody was getting on and it would have felt impossible to get off it and say, Oh, we can't play this game. So people have reacted to that in different ways. But that side of the story, I just I bet it's different now. It's different for for your cohort, and certainly it's way different for the people who are younger than both of us. Yeah, they they would have a whole different experience with it. Yeah, I, I mean, if you're looking to to be that, then you don't really have a choice, right? If you're looking to be famous or social media famous or whatever, then you don't you that is pretty much how you approach it now you can be really well known in one very small circle you know and that would that you know you'd be quote unquote famous <laughs> perhaps but nowadays there's just so much in the way of options for content i guess that as an artist it feels like if if i were trying to really do that I would feel like I'd have to structure my my whole process around that very short initial engagement period where you can grab somebody's attention in the first five seconds of the song. Otherwise, they're not going to listen to you. Uh, and I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to be doing in ten years. I mean, I feel like. Every year of my life so far has has been quite a significant change from the last, uh, which I don't mind really. So maybe in one year from now, everything that I'm that I've just told you, uh, I will disagree with. <laughs> we'll see. But that's okay. You know, whatever happens, happens. But I appreciate that. For that seems like a healthy perspective that you got right now. I, I dig it. Let's hope it stays healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Now that we've set that as the floor, now. Maybe I can ask you this with less implicit baggage because I wouldn't want to intend any of that. Like, do you want to record Path? Do you want to take them into the studio? Do you want to like document a, a live gig that you play in the future to like a higher degree? Like, what what would be some of the coolest things that you could imagine yourself taking that project or like whatever equivalent project you want to talk about? But I'm picking that one because it seems like kind of your flagship in this community with your friends that's your project where would you dream of taking it like in the next little while i i have really seriously wanted to record path not out of some desire to like 
I have to put out a record. I have to do this. I have to do that. I I just I just want to want us to have a record. I I think it'll be it'll be fun, you know, and it'll be cool to to document it because you know, if we record now and then if we record again in a bunch of years, we're going to sound probably at least a little bit different, you know, hopefully. But it's not really out of a desire to go anywhere with that kind of thing but just kind of as a as a record keeping thing i mean you know if path puts out a record and we it gets world famous and we go on tour sure but <laughs> that's that's more of a there's a reason why we're laughing <laughs> that's more of a of a healthy bonus than it is a a, a specific goal yeah i i love that i'm glad that you're there and that's why i wanted to ask you about what kind of pressures you felt first is cuz like otherwise it's just kind of like a boilerplate question and answer exchange that you could have about any project and just be like oh well that's just another thing to do but that in my opinion that's that's totally the reason that's like why we do it like i have i recorded my first album when i was 21 uh, i was in a band a separate band away from this community playing folk rock music when i was 22 23 24 we had an album uh, I recorded my second album when I was 25. You know, I'm like 30 now, so I can't get those times back. But I made the records at that point, and so they exist, and I'll I'll get to carry them with me, right? So that's to me, that's like the only reason that makes sense. Yeah. That, and it does. It's it's really cool when you when when you do it. Yeah, there's a there is a, a chunk of you in each of those, right? And a little snapshot of who you were at the time, mm-hmm. um, which is something we don't get to see unless we document it somehow yeah i i dig it i think i think that's the right kind of motivation now the last thing i want to ask you about is you have a side project mm-hmm. it's called archibald caribou uh, i don't know much about when you started doing it i've browsed through the soundcloud i've listened to some of the things that that you've shared from it what what can you share about this project um it started in i think spring break last year so march 2023 uh-huh Yes, that was last year. Yep. <laughs> um, and it, it really just came from a desire to, for, well, it started out like, I, you know, I want to learn how to use a DAW. I want to learn how to record properly. I want to, you know, dip my toes in production and mixing, you know, and I'm still very much learning that stuff. But I like to, you know, sometimes I, I go back and listen to the choices that I made, like in the early stuff. And then see, like, hear what I would do differently. I mean, like, it's it was also a vessel for me to just practice finishing things. So my my whole deal with with all that stuff, it's like I'll have an idea, I'll have a few hours free, and I will start and finish the entire process in the span of a few hours. And I'm not I don't let myself go back and change stuff. I don't let myself, um, like, you know, hover over the mix for, for a week, you know, and, you know, going back to the social media thing, I think like, that's a, a real thing is, is that kind of, um, oh, this has to be perfect or I can't put it out. I don't want to, I don't want to subscribe to that for myself. So caribou is just, I had an idea. I executed what I thought was right at the time. I did the 
uh, Hocus Pocus production stuff, the very basics that I know, <laughs> which is not very much at, at the current moment, hopefully more soon. Um, and then I just put it somewhere where now I can't, you know, I mean, I can delete it if I want to, obviously, but like I'm committed, you know, people will, will hear this. Uh, this is now on record. It's on the internet. It's there forever. And there's nothing I can do about it. Even if I wanted to go back and change and delete all the files now, it's still there. Um, and it's been nice to be able to make something, you know, not worry about it that much and just let it go. You know, and there, there's some stuff that I like more than some of my other stuff. You know, that's the nature of being an that's artist. That's how it goes. Yeah. But it's been really nice to just be, to just finish things consistently. Even if they're not like studio grade mixed, like finished in that sense. But, you know, the fleshing out of an idea that has been essentially completed in the idea sense, in the art sense, but not completed in the production sense because I'm still learning how to do that. Um, so it's, you know, they're really all demos, <laughs> but it's been, it's been freeing, you know, and it's not like it's, you know, it's not like it's anonymous. Like everybody knows it's me uh, for the most part, but it's really just one single degree of separation uh, from being my actual name that, for, that somehow removes all the different kinds of pressures one might feel for like, oh, I have to play in this genre. I have to play, you know, this instrument. I have to do this a certain way. I, you know, all, all these little things that as soon as you put the silly little pseudonym in front of it, now nothing matters. No, like nothing that you do actually, maybe not nothing matters, but I, I think you might get the gist from that. Like it's, it's not caribou's identity as an artist doesn't matter to me because there isn't one yeah, yeah because it's another kind of we were talking about baggage right it's like you're always looking for ways to escape the baggage and to just chip away at something and then you 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 just will you will improve over time and then you'll be able to do new things that you couldn't do before you'll have taken yourself on that journey you'll have transported yourself somewhere else but you have to you have to set yourself up to do it. It doesn't just happen on its own unless you like carve out space to go on that journey yourself. It's not just going to come to you. Like it's something that you have to do. You have to initiate it, right? Yeah. And it's a it's a it's a process that allows me to be bad at stuff. Yes. Um like very early on like learning how to, you know, arm a track so that when <laughs> I record it actually records, which hopefully I've done today. <laughs> um you know, all the way up until you know, learning how to I don't know, do whatever, you know, I, I, I hesitate to make a, an actual example at the risk of making a fool of myself. Uh, <laughs> but all these different kinds of things, like, you know, it happens as, as a musician too. It's like, you know, your, your, your room is where you are comfortable, not playing well, hopefully. Right. Or, mm -hmm. but now caribou has kind of become my digital bedroom in which I can, do things that might not turn out well and I don't care because if some rando hears it and thinks it sucks I mean that doesn't matter to begin with but also it's not attached to my name mm -hmm. uh, but then it's it's just somehow that single degree of separation putting the, the funny little pseudonym uh, that I got from just making up names to play Pokemon Showdown with my friend Tristan uh, <laughs> and <laughs> 
like that is the most freeing thing for for whatever reason even though everybody knows it's me it's not actually anonymous yeah you're not trying to hide that's not the reason why you set it up that way it's it's this thing of being able to be bad being able to experiment that yeah. you've set it up yeah trying to normalize imperfection you know cuz you know we talked about the social media pressures right it's it's all like this has to be perfect this has to be perfectly edited or my kick drum has to sound this way or seven people in the Instagram comments are going to tell me I suck at music, <laughs> right? Or all these these little things like, oh, what? you know, I can hear the mistakes in my tracks, but I don't care. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't matter. I'm not sending it to a record label. I'm not putting it anywhere. I'm not making money off of it. I'm just putting it there because I had an idea and I wanted to do it. And, you know, post mistakes. That's it. It's like what I'm gonna I'm gonna sit in I'm gonna sit in silence and like try to get this this riff perfect for 30 takes so I can post it on Instagram and get 10 likes because people think my guitar playing is cool. No, I don't I don't like what am I gonna that that's time I could spend practicing. That's time I could spend having a chicken sandwich, right? <laughs> I could do anything in that time besides recording the same thing 30 times for social media because it has to be perfect and in two days it's no longer going to appear on anybody's feed yeah that that makes total sense i am going to link out to it when i published this episode so Mm. that anybody who hasn't come across it yet and is aware of your playing here locally can check that out too i had a lot of fun chatting with you today at the risk of sounding like an old man i feel like you've got a great head on your shoulders sir and that you've got a very healthy attitude about things uh i'm inspired by that and i look forward to the next time that i get to hear you play so thanks for joining me today Thank you for having me. I look forward to hearing you play. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Rhythm Changes podcast. Just want to shout out that this podcast, along with all the other shows on the Turnoff Music Network, is mixed by Justin Gorey, editor on our team. We're very grateful to have you here, Justin. You're doing an awesome job. Want to make sure I shout you out here on the first episode of this show that you did. If you haven't signed up for the free weekly email at Rhythm Changes yet, go to rhythmchanges.ca to do that. Rhythm Changes is a Turnoff Music production. Peace. Peace.